Good morning. We are going to continue on our study through our New Testament survey that started with the Old Testament um, at the beginning of the year. And for those of you that have been with us from the beginning, we've actually covered 1,107 chapters to this point. That's, that's a lot of material to cover. So there's only 1,189. So for those of you that like statistics, we're 93% done. That's your progress report as of today. So um, it's amazing how much we've covered in so little time. We're averaging like 24 plus chapters a week. And um, we're actually going to slow down. 93% seems like, you know, we're going to button this up here in a couple weeks. But we actually have several weeks left as we cover just an epistle at a time. And although they're shorter, they're very dense um, with truth that's helpful and um, an exhortation to us. So I hope that you've gained a lot. Um, If you have missed some, please go back and listen to them. They're super encouraging and um, helpful as we gain uh, a bigger view of God and what he's done throughout history. So I trust that um, through our study today, uh, we will be able to see more clearly what God has done for us in Christ and how we ought to live because of Christ. And as a result, bring glory to God as we understand his word better. So let's pray together as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God of all. We trust you, and we come to your word needy this morning. We ask that you would teach us, that you would be present to implant your truth in us and transform us to be more like Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. In case you are not familiar um, with the 1,108th chapter of the Bible, we're going to be in Colossians this morning, so please flip over. When I grew up, it was uh, remembering Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians was go eat popcorn. I don't know if you guys had different acronyms, but we'll be in the the corn portion of the go eat popcorn books. And for the book of Colossians, um, we we know that the author is Paul. Um, Paul wrote this letter um, along with Ephesians, and they're known as the twin epistles that they are very commonly overlapped Um, as there's a lot of similar content, but we'll see today that the book of Colossians, this letter uh, to this church, is is very different in its intent and its purpose and focus as it nuances um, a little differently. It looks at it a little differently. So the audience of the letter is the church at Colossae. And for those of you that are visual, um, the map up uh, behind me shows that the church at Colossae was located about 100 miles east of the church at Ephesus, which was a port city. It was, Ephesus is actually um, on the far west side of what we know as modern-day Turkey. So um, Colossae was more inland, and it was actually, surprisingly, not a huge, renowned city. I know several of these books we've covered, it's like, man, this was a huge city. This was a big impact. It was a big deal to have the gospel in this city and for God to grow it as there's a large group of people. But Colossae was not one of those cities. Um, It was a little podunk town. It had two big cities next to it uh, because the trade route went through those cities, um, Hierapolis and Laodicea. So um, this was kind of a suburb um, of sorts, and Paul actually didn't plant this church. Um, He was serving and planting a church in Ephesus, and the gospel had reached um, someone who um, was actually a resident of Colossae. His name was Epaphras, and Epaphras went back and planted a church. So it was kind of a a production of ministry. It's um, almost like a a sister church or a planted church from the church at Ephesus. So 
That's how Paul was um, connected indirectly with Colossae, but he actually didn't know these believers, and Epaphras um, actually went to go see Paul in Rome. So if you look up at our map, way across the known world at that time, he would have traveled from Colossae all the way over uh, to Rome. So why would Epaphras travel so long, so far, to this trusted believer in Christ, the Apostle Paul, to to bring concerns. Um, what was the heresy or the issues? And if we um, study the letter at, of Colossians, we'll find that there was um, a lot, um, it was a bit of a hodgepodge almost of heresies. Um, if you flip over to chapter 2, uh, verses 8 in the book of Colossians, you'll see um, a short list of what was going on. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to elemental spirits of the world. So Paul was being asked to write a letter to address a mixture of Jewish legalism, Gnostic philosophy, and Oriental mysticism. But with all those titles, we can kind of get lost in what that really means. So what, what was this heresy teaching? What was going on in the town? Well, what was being taught was that spiritual knowledge was only for the superior intellects. Um, there was creating a class of Christians um, and separating them apart. So knowledge was prioritized. They could understand divine mysteries. Certain Christians, these superior intellects, could understand divine mysteries that were totally unknown and unavailable to typical Christians. As a result, faith was treated with contempt. Um, advanced Gnosticism, um, about 100 years later, even taught that salvation was through knowledge, uh, that you actually attained it through um, mental assent. Um, and then as we've been talking about through several of these other books, there's this idea of dualism, okay? Which is just basically summarizing it is physical is bad and spiritual is good. That's kind of the, the nutshell of it. But what was taking place in the town of Colossae was that they were denying God as the creator of the physical world. So what was happening was they actually believed in this thing called angelic cosmogony, which really is just that God created an angel, that created an angel, that created an angel, that created so on, so on, so on. And then the angel is the one that created the world. And in their minds, they were trying to absolve God of creating something that's evil. So their intent was good, which we hear all the time nowadays in, in common heresies in our day and age, is we try to absolve God of something, and so we make something up that's not taught in Scripture. And so the result of this is that God did not make the world in the past, so that means he doesn't work in the present. That's the result of this sort of belief. That means we throw out prayer, we throw out miracles right out the gate. And on top of that, they added angelic worship. Okay, they were prioritizing these angels because they thought the only way to get to God is to give our due respect to each angel on this whole ladder the whole way up. So that's, that's what was going on in the dualism belief system at the town of Colossae. And ultimately, what happened was Jesus was just a good start, um, but there was more that they needed beyond Christ. There were other ways to receive fullness in the Christian life. Life and wisdom was found through the powers of human abilities, okay? There was legalism, which means they wanted to follow a set number of rules, or asceticism, which means they severely restricted their body or disciplined themselves um, in order to gain a certain level of Christendom or Christianity of this new life that they're supposed to experience. As a result, Christ was reduced to a mere creature and at best, the highest created being. This was an attack on the Trinity and on the eternal sovereign deity of Jesus Christ. This was a huge issue for the early church. And that's why Epaphras went all the way 
to see Paul to address this issue going on at, at his hometown. This was a three-pronged attack. Um, you'll see that there was the denial of the finality of Christ's work because they added works and they added knowledge. They denied the preeminence of Christ because they worshipped angels over him. And they denied their continued need for Christ, which was the added severe self-discipline aspect. These attacks are not just attacks against this early church in 60 AD, but they are the ones that we still deal with today. Nowadays, the less people know about Christ, the more they like him. The baby in the manger provides lots of comfort during the Christian holiday known as Christmas. Secularists quote the Sermon on the Mount. Religions that promote merely Christ as an example of humility or sacrifice or basic goodness, they're devaluing Christ. One quote I found this week said, Since Christ said that the world would hate him, we can be quite sure when the world says it loves him is because they've made Christ into something he's not. This was the issue going on at the church at Colossae. It seems that they had good biblical leadership and teaching and was foundational. So these were attacks that were coming against the churches. They're trying to evangelize and share the gospel. They're combated and conflicted with this truth. And so how does Paul address this heresy, this false teaching? Well, the summary of what Paul is going to communicate that we'll dive into today is that the supremacy of Christ is the source and sustaining power of new life for the believer. This is the purpose of Paul's writing, the purpose of this letter to this church. The supremacy of Christ empowers every comfort, every caution, and every command that Paul writes to these fellow saints that he has never met before. Paul wrote to remind them that their new life is found ultimately in Christ and Christ alone. Through Christ's death, We die to our old selves, and through his life, we are given new life. Our new lives are characterized by transformed relationships with God and others. And as a result, this new life we live is fiercely Christ-centered. But how exactly does Paul address the false teaching that is threatening to turn these Colossians away from Christ toward the wisdom of the world? He wanted to give them a grasp of of two really central truths that we're going to look at this morning for the new believer. First is going to be that the Christian's new life comes from God through Christ alone. From God through Christ alone. And the second truth we'll look at is that a Christian's new life is for God and others. Is for God and others. We'll see that as it's evidenced and displayed in the relationships with other people and with God. So let's look at these two truths in more detail this morning. First truth being that new life comes from God through Christ alone. New life is the first aspect that we'll look at, and this theme is something that's coming up time and time again. We've seen it in the Old Testament when he talks about, through his prophets, talking about giving them a new heart and implanting a new relationship with him where they can be right with God, holy before him. And this new life is mentioned multiple times already in our study through the New Testament as well. Think about your own experience. As a result of the cross, Christians' lives are changed forever. And if you remember your own testimony, you remember you were enslaved to your sinful desires, chasing down every pleasure, 
hunting down everything that can possibly appease your desires, but you always came up empty-handed and disappointed. And now think about your priorities. What do you desire now? Loving others sacrificially, spreading the gospel, pleasing God, totally polar opposites. In Christ, we've received new life, and Paul describes this new life in the book of Colossians by these polar opposites, these um, crazy, very far apart ideas, okay? And he does this in three different ones that I'll mention briefly as he talks about being dead, okay? He talks about being dead in our trespasses and sins and that through Christ we are made alive and forgiven. And then we also have the idea in chapter three, he talks about a mindset, okay? Don't set your mind on earthly things, but set your mind on things that are above. And then thirdly, he talks about us being enemies, enemies with God. And instead, in his prayer in chapter one for the Colossians, he talks about praying that they would walk worthy, seeking to please him. This is a radical change, this new life. But we must not forget the source, or we will find ourselves lined up squarely with the heresy and the false teachers back in the church of Colossae. So this new life that we're going to talk about today comes from a source. And that source, Paul clearly lays out for us, is from God. Flip with me to chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And in verse 12, if you glaze, graze your eyes down, uh, verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a gift from God. That's what he describes new life as, as a gift. And we've seen that already um, in our study as well. Think about these verbs that describe what God has done. He's qualified you. He has delivered you. He has transferred you. He has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has canceled your debt. And he has made you alive. This is a beautiful gift from God. And we've seen this in the Old Testament. Time and time again, the Israelites would get in trouble, but God is the one who had to save them. And even specifically in the theme of the book of Jonah, we see that salvation belongs to the Lord. In the New Testament, we've seen this even in the twin epistle, we get um, the commonly known verse, for by grace have you been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves, but it is what? A gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. So the response here of not only seeing the source, but in both of these verses and in multiple other verses in the book of Colossians, the response of the believer is thankfulness. So the question for us this morning in response to this truth that God is the source of salvation is, are you thankful to God for salvation? And it's interesting in looking through the book of Colossians, you see he talks about a thankful heart. And a lot of times, that's what we'll say is, man, I, I really have a disposition of thankfulness. I have a thankful heart. But he parallels this idea of thankfulness in your hearts with three different verbal, vocal actions. He says teaching, admonishing, and singing. So my question to you is, do you vocally, verbally thank God for salvation? When's the last time you did that? You just took time in prayer to thank God personally for what he has done for you. It's important. It, it hones in our focus on who the source is. But not only does our new life come from God, there are two aspects to which we want to look at this source. 
the source of salvation. And those two aspects are that it's through Christ and Christ alone. Through Christ and Christ alone. First, we'll look at the idea that this this salvation that belongs to the Lord is given through Christ. Look with me at chapter 2. Chapter 2 really has, uh, between verse 8 and 10, is a great summary passage of what's taking place at the church of Colossae and the content of Paul's message. He talks about um, these these empty ideas of human tradition and philosophy and elemental spirits, and he says that they're doing this instead of following Christ. And he talks about in verse 9, he says, For in him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if you look down in verse 13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, again, we're going to see this idea of new life, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him being Christ. This is the truth for believers that Christ is the source of our new life. Christ's death and resurrection is the means by which God the Father applies new life to us. Look over in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I love this picture that he lays out. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. No more do we have the old man. We are new. And then in verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This shows us that Christ is the center of our hope. Christ is the one who is the source of our salvation. Secondly, not only is our um, new life from God through Christ, but it is specifically through Christ alone. And that's a huge part of this letter to the church at, the Colossae, at Colossae. It's really important for us to grasp as well. I think when you f- contemplate your experiences and um, instances where you've had evangelistic opportunities, I want you to think about how can I ask somebody directly what they think about the work and person of Jesus Christ. Because that's going to that's gonna really hone in your conversation. You're going to weed out a lot of details if you just say, what do you think about Jesus Christ? That's what I want to talk about. And that's what Paul wanted to talk about with these believers and hone them in on the idea of who Christ is and what he's done. It's important for us to recognize that there is no other person, no other achievement or idea or human effort that will ever save you. And we want to be clear with the gospel in that way. To Paul, this is critical to defending the gospel from heresy. Paul calls Christ in chapter 2 God's mystery in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So in chapter 2, if you look with me at verse 18 and 19, we'll see the problem and the solution. Okay, the problem and the solution. In chapter 2, verses 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, severe discipline of the body, or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And instead, we see the solution. This is what they weren't doing, that they should be doing. He says in verse 19, And not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They are detaching themselves from the body by trusting in these other things. 
That's what he's trying to emphasize is that you need Christ and Christ alone. He says, don't be deceived or taken captive by plausible arguments, by philosophy and empty deceit, by human tradition or elemental spirits of this world. So many times in our day and age, we see lots of different things that want to be added to Christ. And they all have what Paul calls the appearance of wisdom. It seems to be a good idea but they have no value in solving our sin problem. To put it in the most basic form of language that I can understand, clearly, it's math. Okay, math, to me, is just a pure form of language. So, in math, this is what Paul is trying to say. Christ plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything to Christ, you lose it all. It's Christ or nothing. And conversely, we can see it the other way as well. Christ plus nothing equals everything. It is Christ alone. So why, why can we trust in Christ alone? How can, we, how can we confidently say that Christ is everything we need for life and godliness? It's because Christ is supreme. Flip with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1 in the book of Colossians. Paul starts out with this really gem of a passage about who Christ is. And when you think about Christology, the study of the person and work of Christ, I want you to think about John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. Those are the three primary passages. If anyone has um, a belief about Christ that you're kind of questioning or doesn't, it takes you to a gut check, go to these passages. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Super helpful and encouraging for us as we trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to run through these quickly in um, Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 15. It says, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Just here in verse 15, Paul is asserting that Christ has the divine nature of God. It's, it's ironic to me that modern-day heretics um, who believe in a lesser Christ will go to this passage. And we ought to not be fearful of that, but we ought to be grateful for that. This is them standing in a landmine, you know, a target zone to drop bombs on them. So say, yes, let's talk about this passage. He is the image. He reveals the nature of God. He is the actual imprinting tool Okay? And the firstborn of creation, this isn't um, a doctor's term. Okay? It never has been. God calls Israel his firstborn. They're not the first nation that was ever in existence. Okay? And multiple times through the story of redemption, we see that it wasn't the firstborn child that gets the firstborn inheritance rights. It's a title of rank and position. That's what Paul is pointing out here. And that's what we need to emphasize in our lives personally as well, that this position of importance and authority belongs to Christ alone. Look with me at verse 16 and 17. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Think about dualism right there. Visible and invisible, material and immaterial. He's pointing it out that it's everything. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, throw angels in there. He's created them. He's over them. All things were created through Christ and for Christ, 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love a summary of um, this passage that just bullet points these prepositional phrases that give um, titles to Christ and his authority over creation. It's in him, through him, for him. He is before all things, and all things consist. He is the sphere of creation. He is the agent of creation, the one who accomplishes it. He is the goal of creation, the target that it points to. He is prior to creation and the sustainer of creation. This is the passage where we source our song that we sing the first place. That's why we can sing every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. For through you and for you it was made. Your creation endures by the order of your hand. So you must have in all things the first place. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. And when you think back to the Old Testament that we just studied through, who alone gets the category or the title of creator? It is God himself. It is God himself. And that's why Paul points to this directly and gives this clear teaching on Christ as the creator is because he wants it to be explicitly clear that Jesus is God. In verse 18, it talks about him as the divine creator of the church. So not only is he the creator of the physical world and everything in the spiritual world, but he also has made the church. In verse 18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the church. And that was a huge point of emphasis for Paul, that they need to be attached to Christ because he is the one that sustains them personally. He doesn't just accomplish and bring you into new life. He sustains you through it. He's the source that you need. In verse 19 through 20, he continues saying, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we see that the powerful, supreme, preeminent Christ is also the redeemer and the reconciler of believers. Uh, I love the way one contemporary artist um, summarizes um, this passage. He says, he is big, we are small. He's creator, we're creation. He is God, and we are man. Right response? We should fall on our faces. That's absolutely what we should see in this passage about who Christ is and how we should respond in light of it. If you flip back a couple pages to Philippians, to borrow from a passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That's the name. That will be his eternal name. We will call him Lord, Master, to the glory of God the Father. Is Jesus Christ enough for you? Is the creator of the universe, the creator of the church, is he enough for you? 
Or are you wanting something more to satisfy you? Just to list off a few things, we we chase after satisfaction in our jobs, in our health, in our finances. We seek for satisfaction in our home life. We want to get along with our spouse or kids or our parents or our siblings. What about your other relationships? Maybe there's a relationship that's missing that you feel like, you know what? I really love Christ, but if he just gave me this one thing, this one relationship, I think I'd be, I think I'd be satisfied. I'd be good. What about even in ministry here in the church? You know, if this ministry was available for my kids, I think we would really get a lot more. Or if maybe if I was a part of this ministry, I think it would work a lot better. What about success? When things aren't going well, is Christ enough? What about the praise of man? It's important for us to realize this isn't just a 2,000-year-old letter. It's relevant today for us. Is Christ enough? Is he everything to you? It is vital that we never diminish or belittle Christ because for the believer, our new life is sourced in Christ alone. It is from God through him, through Christ. Secondly, the second truth that Paul wants to emphasize for these believers at Colossae is that new life is for God and others. New life is for God and others. New life has implications for how we relate to God. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Paul, in this passage, is praying for the church at Colossae, saying, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here Paul is wanting to call out of these believers a different lifestyle. That's what he refers to when he talks about walking worthy of the Lord and seeking to please him. And there are four marks that we can see here of this new life. What does it look like to walk worthy? How is it evidenced? In this new life, what, what is the manifestation of it? And he says, there's fruitfulness in good works. So quickly, what's, what's our question here? Our question is going to be, are you growing in obedience? Is there fruitfulness in good works? Do you see this pattern in your life as you submit to Christ that you are growing in obedience to what his word says? Which is a perfect transition to the next point that he makes. It says, increasing in knowledge of God. So our question there would be, are you seeking to know God in his word? Or are you kind of just in cruise control? You know what, I grew up in church, I know a lot about the Bible, I have some verses memorized, I'm just kind of going to go through the motions and I'm good. That'd be a big gut check, because here it says you're supposed to be increasing in knowledge. That's a, a, a mark of someone who's a new believer, or a new, has new life as a believer in Christ. Thirdly, he says, we're to be thankful to God, which we've talked about briefly this morning already. Do you spend time in thankful praise to God? And fourthly, he says, patience in difficulty. Do you wait and rest? When you're in hot water situations, do you curl up in a ball, go to sleep, 
Or do you actually turn and say, God, I need you. And I can, I can wade through the storm because I can trust that you are in control and I want to rest in you. Our relationship with God and how we relate to him is radically changed and it should evidence in our lives. And secondly, Paul really spends the second half of this letter showing the new life implications of how we relate to others. How we relate to others. In chapter 3, he makes this transition. And if you look with me at verses um, 8 through 12, we'll hop around a little bit, starting in, in verse 9. He shows, again, this comparison between the new and the old. He said, Having put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are made alive in Christ. So we are to be made like Christ. That's the new life he's talking about. And to contrast the old life, what it was like, and the new life, we bump up to see the old life in verse 8. It says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And what does this new life look like? What does this new life for a believer actually um, cause us to live in evidence in our lives? What does it look like? Verse 12. Look down at verse 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is a key ingredient for our Christian life and a necessary empowerment that we get from Christ. It should coat everything that we do. This new life is meant to be different. It's meant to be a light and salt in this world. And it should be evidenced in our lives. This should have an effect on us that produces a new heart, new attitudes, a new way of thinking, and even responding to the world. Paul wants to make this extremely practical. Extremely practical. And he talks about it in kind of two different spheres, two different um, areas of life to display this for the church here at Colossae. He says, new life should be evidenced in our home. It should be evident in our home. And that's Verses 18 through 21. We won't read that this morning, but it's a familiar passage to us of how we should relate to our spouses and our children and as parents as well. I think in our home life, we often want to just, quote, relax, right? That's the place where we chill out, put it down in a neutral, don't have anything that's really pressing and kind of um, chill out. But we really use this as an excuse to be selfish with both our words and our time. So the question that Paul would ask us is, is your new life in Christ evident or embarrassed by your home life? The way you act at home, is it evidence of new life in you because of Christ? Or do you not want people to come over because they might see you act a certain way? Or you only put it on when you invite people over? That's important for us to really analyze because Paul's saying this is the mark of a new believer. Secondly, Paul wants to talk about this new life being evident in our work life as well, which is verses 22 through 4. And he talks about how we should obey with sincerity of heart 
This is not just external actions, but we should work heartily as to the Lord and not just to men. Our jobs, our, our work that God gives you, whether it's employed in a workplace or working at home, wherever it is, whatever you're doing, whether it's volunteer work or you're paid, you should work heartily as to the Lord. So the question for us is, does this describe your attitude in the work God has given you? It's difficult because in our day and age, the culture of the workplace is to complain, right? It could be in the middle of the day at the actual site where your bosses work. Somebody's going to come over and they're going to tell you about how they hate the processes, how they hate the people, and it's just basically small talk nowadays. Do you partake or do you stand apart and say, you know what, I'm grateful for this job. God's given it to me and I don't seek to please my boss or please man, but I want to honor him in the way I work. And that defines my work ethic. And I, I'd love to talk more about that with you. Because it, it totally transforms the attitude I have at work, the attitude it brings home from the trials of work. We ought to be grateful to work and careful to honor God in our work. Last thing I want us to look at this morning is actually in chapter 1. If you flip back over to chapter 1, starting in verse 22, we'll see that because um, our new life is so important and so all-encompassing, we must strive to actually endure. We must strive to endure to the end. In verse 22, actually we'll, we'll glance up to 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This idea of enduring to the end is something that Paul really wanted to emphasize for the believers. And it's important for us, too, because it's important that we finish well. It's important that we finish well. We must persevere to the end to receive the fullness of our new lives in Christ with his new creation. That is why Paul prays for the Colossians that they would have all endurance and patience with joy. That speaks to both enduring with people and with circumstances. We know that our perseverance is guaranteed by God who enables us to live in obedience and pleasing to him through his spirit. Yet we also see here in Colossians that we must strive every day to live out this perseverance. There's a call to duty and a call to dependence. And all of this, if we understand it correctly, is impossible. If we don't understand the Christ and the gospel laid out in the first half of this letter. So as you study this book, spend good time considering and meditating on Paul's words in the first chapter. Consider that this life, this new life, is God-centered, God-powered, God-glorifying, and that we've received it from him. And then and only then, move forward, read on, and contemplate how it should be evidenced in your life. I want to read for us a song titled, all glory, be to Cl- all glory be to Christ, in closing. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? 
a mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. His will be done and his kingdom come on earth as is above, who is himself our daily bread. Praise him, the Lord of love. Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness, kindness yet. All glory be to Christ. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will forever sing. All glory be to Christ.